Hello and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, spirit-filled, non-denominational church meeting in the Los Feliz area of Los Angeles, or we hope to be again sometime soon. Everything we do as a church is, as with most of the rest of life, currently happening online. We're not all in the same circumstances, but these days are not easy for most of us, so please know that we're here for you if you need any spiritual or emotional support at all. The Holy Spirit is not held back by coronavirus, and this current teaching series is our response to what we believe he's saying to us as a church, to expect more. God is at work and he is powerful. We're praying that your faith for his presence and power in your own life will be raised as you listen today. Now, a quick recap from last week. I talked about the social and the supernatural elements of our faith. We as Christians are called to be both, both supernatural and social. Social in that we are formed by the gospel into a new family. We adopt uh, new brothers and sisters and are adopted by God. And social also in that we are called to affect society, to bring God's kingdom of justice to culture. Supernatural, of course, because we are transformed by his spirit in a supernatural way from one degree to another over our lifetimes, but also supernatural in that we are witnesses to his authority and his power, his authority in healing over sickness, his authority in deliverance over evil, and his authority over the natural order through miraculous things like calming of storms. Now, as I said last week, I think we've dropped the ball a little bit on the supernatural side of things. For various very good reasons, we have concentrated recently on the social aspect of the gospel and our faith. But ultimately, we want both running concurrently all the time. And so I think we need to have a little bit of a reset and continue to rediscover our supernatural faith. We uh, are therefore going to be looking at Jesus' miracles over the next few weeks. You can kind of categorise them into different ways, which we have done. But this week we're starting with his first miracle, uh, turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana. We are, as I said last week, all in need. It's what makes us human. And our world is in need. But in very simple terms, what we are in most need of is an experience ongoingly of Jesus's power. So this series is really about how his power meets our needs and how we can experience more of it. But first, a quick look at uh, what I think God has been saying to us as a church this week. I think it has been very easy, given COVID and given these sort of ever increasingly um, restrictive measures of lockdown, to feel like this is a challenging time for us to experience God. It's a challenging time for us because we can't, of course, meet in person, we can't pray in person together, we can't worship in person together. And spiritually, quite obviously, it's uh, a, a challenging time for us. But I think it's easy, because it's a challenging time for us, to think it therefore must be a challenging time for God. But I think actually this is not the right way to see things. And I want to encourage us that actually this isn't necessarily the case. In fact, it may well be exactly the opposite of this. In a moment in history when so much of what normally fills our life and actually can distract us is taken away from us, this could actually well be a time where God is saying, I have got you exactly where I want you. 
nothing is actually ever difficult for God. Nothing's ever challenging for him at all. He's God. The only thing that restricts him is actually us. Our desire to meet with him, our behaviour, our expectation. So I want to encourage all of us, as I encourage myself, to come once again with expectation to meet with God. That this, in fact, may well be the time in history where we meet him most powerfully, most intimately, most transformatively. He is the one who wants to do this for us, after all. The picture I had was of a milk jug. And Hannah and I have been discussing whether or not um, churning creates cream or butter. But for the purposes of this picture, can we just agree, even if it's not true, that churning makes cream? Because that's what I saw. Anyway, I saw this milk jug, and we're like a milk jug, and we're being churned. And of course, this is a disruptive time for us. I'm sure a lot of us can identify with that feeling of sort of churning things up. But what I felt God was saying is, go with the churning, because as uh, the milk is churned, the good stuff rises to the top. All the good stuff of his, uh, his love, his joy, his peace, his goodness for us, is what he is bringing to the fore. And so let us not miss this opportunity to experience from him again. So with that in mind, let us hear the reading from John chapter 2, and this is read by Heidi. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. Thank you, Heidi. So Jesus, his mother, and his brothers have been invited to this wedding. And in ancient traditional culture, weddings were an even bigger deal then than they are now. They weren't so much about as they are now the happiness of the couple or, you know, the bride. They were about the happiness of the whole community. And so it was a case of let's have strong and lots of marriages so that we can have uh, lots of strong families so that our whole community can grow and can become strengthened. And then we can provide for each other, we can uh, look after each other, we can defend each other, and basically we can flourish. And the whole community would be invited to the wedding. It was a huge deal. 
and they would last for at least uh, a week. And then right at the end of the festivities, there would be this wedding feast, which we are introduced to here in the passage. And this is really about the groom. It's about the groom being able to say to the whole community, and particularly to the bride's family, here I have prepared everything and I am going to provide. I'm going to provide all of you so that I will be able to provide for my new wife. And the wine within this feast was probably the single most important part of the feast. Now, if you were brought up in a strict Southern Baptist home, let me just explain. Wine is this uh, drink made from fermented grapes and you can get it in lots of different varieties and it can be absolutely delicious. So, for the wine to run out in this feast, where the groom is saying, look, I can provide, this isn't just a social faux pas, it is a sort of community shaming psychological disaster. It says the groom cannot do what he needs to be able to do for the good of the whole community. So it reflects not just badly on the host, it reflects badly on the whole village. There isn't really any modern equivalent. This is a sort of shameful, embarrassing, dishonouring, and it will never ever be lived down. So obviously when Mary sees that the wine has run out, she goes and she tries to do something about it and she goes straight to Jesus. Now it's almost certain that at this time Joseph, Mary's husband, has died, so Jesus is the head of the household. But his reply is very significant. Woman, he says, why do you involve me? Literally it's, what have you and I to do with each other? What have we in common? He is being incredibly dismissive here. And this is really an insight into where his mind is at. The third day, referenced at the beginning of the passage, is um, three days after he has met John the Baptist and chosen his disciples. So it's really just 72 hours into his public ministry. 30 years of pretty much uneventful life up until now, and now he is on the scene. So his public ministry has only just begun, but straight away, <coughs> Excuse me. He knows that his public ministry is leading somewhere. It is uh, an entrance into the end game for him. His hour has not yet come, as he says, but he knows it's coming, and that's where his mind is. And this really is the key to the whole passage. The whole episode is bookended. Here it mentions his hour, which is a reference to his death and resurrection. And then at the end, John says this, verse 11. This was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And glory, as John writes, is another reference to Jesus' death and resurrection. And so this is the point. This first miracle of Jesus isn't just a display of his power. It isn't just him announcing to the whole world that here he is, the kingdom of God is coming, the God-man's ministry has begun, and he's going to kick it off with a bang with a sort of conjuring trick to bring in the crowds. It's much, much more than that. This miracle is actually a signifier of everything that he has come to do. It's like his whole ministry is distilled into this episode. It's like his entire mission and manifesto in microcosmic miracle form is displayed. And what this miracle tells us about Jesus' mission is two things. Firstly, that the old is gone. And secondly, that the new has come. His mother said to the servants, verse 5, Do whatever he tells you. 
Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill these jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. So these six stone jars represent the old. Jesus instructs the servants to fill them and they fill them with water to the brim. Now most likely these would already have been used by all the guests to cleanse themselves before the feast. So they would have already been somewhat filled with water. Now the fact that they are stone rather than earthenware means that they are extremely expensive and so we're talking about um, some sort of uh, noble in the village community and these are his possessions and they are used for his um, ritual cleansing and observance of the law. The significant point here is Jesus is ordering them to be filled, not destroyed or taken away, but filled. Because Jesus did not come uh, symbolically here to abolish the law, to destroy these uh, jars, but to fulfill them. The law is good. This is a very important point for all of us to grasp, that the law is a gift from God. It is for uh, the Israelite people to show them that he is theirs and they are his. But the law has run its course. Its time is up and now is the time for Jesus. And in him the old has gone and the new has come. Verse 8. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who drew the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. Now, despite what you may have heard at Sunday school, and actually, indeed, despite what this translation kind of um, suggests, there is actually a very strong argument to say that the water that the servants draw to give to the master of ceremonies is not from the jars at all, but from the well. The jars, as I said themselves, would have been huge, uh, maybe three or four hundred pounds heavy when they were fully filled. So most likely, having already been full to some level, they would have been filled to the brim by servants taking smaller vessels to the village well, taking that water to the jars and then filling them up to the top. But when Jesus then says, go and draw some out and give it to the master of ceremonies, the word for draw out is a word that only ever means to draw from a well. So I think what the picture is, is actually this. Jesus has said, fill those jars, and having filled them to the brim, he then says, right, those are filled, those are fulfilled, leave them alone, go back to the well, take some water out of that, and give it to the master of ceremonies. But what, of course, they draw from the well is not water at all. It is wine of the highest quality. Now, to change six huge 30-gallon stone jars full of water into wine would be extraordinary and extravagant. That's 900 about of our normal bottles worth. A huge amount. But 900 bottles worth of the choicest greatest, best wine is still not enough for Jesus. He's turning the whole village well into wine. The days are coming, declares the Lord through the prophet Amos, when new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills.
The mountains will drip, says the prophet Joel, with sweet wine. Isaiah 6, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Jesus here is literally fulfill, fulfilling these prophecies. Not just an abundance of the best wine from some huge stone water jars, but a whole village's water supplies worth. Mountains dripping with wine. And what does wine represent? Of course, it represents joy and laughter and celebration and happiness and extravagance. Isn't it interesting? This is how Jesus announces and summarizes his whole ministry. He has come to bring joy. He's come to bring laughter. He's come to bring fun. There's a reason that fun day rhymes with Sunday. It's his day. He's the fun master. And so often the sad thing is that what culture knows of Christians is what we stand against. When Christians in the news, it's so often about what we are bemoaning or what we're riling against or what we're despairing of in culture. But Jesus doesn't introduce himself by what he's against. He introduces himself by what he's for. And what he's for is joy. Overflowing, abundant joy. The question is, why? Well, quite simply and obviously speaking, because there isn't enough of it. There isn't enough of it, and there's far too much of what it stands against. There's far too much depression. There's far too much disgrace. There's far too much hopelessness, and there's far too much loneliness. But Jesus' joy is the antidote to all of those things. This miracle saves the whole community from embarrassment, and the groom in particular from the ignominy of not being able to provide. But the greatest significance of Jesus' mission is about another wedding entirely. And at this wedding, Jesus is the groom, and the whole of humankind is the bride. And Jesus, the groom, provides for us in every way. He provides an end to all our disgrace by carrying it on himself, robbing it of all its power, and leaving it dead, decaying in an empty tomb. And he provides an end to all our loneliness by adopting us, each one of us, as his beloved children, telling us that he's proud of us, that we're his, and placing us in his eternal family, being our father to us, who loves us unconditionally. And he provides an end to all our hopelessness by preparing a place for us in heaven now and forever, a holy city, which we will call our home, where every tear is wiped from every eye and all suffering ends. And he provides an end to depression by telling us, you matter. You matter to him. You're significant. You're valuable. So how do we get it? How do we get the joy? When the wine was gone, right at the beginning of the story, Jesus' mother said to him, 
they have no more wine. It's so simple, isn't it? Mary, Jesus' mother, she is the model here. We just have to come to him and ask. Simple, of course, but not always very easy. I'll be honest, Jesus is often kind of halfway down my list of things that I should go to when I'm in need. But when we can actually admit our need, when everything else is stripped away and we can acknowledge, one, that we're in need, and two, that there's only really one person who can meet our needs, that's when we find it. We're all not very good at being God, but he is excellent at being God. So let's take our hands off the wheel and let him drive once more. Are you currently full of all of the life of the joyful living God? If you're not, you can be so once again right now today. This is the supernatural side of our faith. Because joy is part of the fruit of the Spirit. It's so important it comes second only to love in the list of the fruit of the Spirit. And being part of the fruit of the Spirit, it is something that comes to us from without, fills us from within, and then spills out of us onto all those we come in contact with. Jesus promises his Spirit to everyone. We just have to ask. Now, this joy is not about happiness. Happiness is momentary. Happiness comes from the word hap, which is the root word of happenstance or circumstance. It's directly linked to the idea that we are happy when happy things are happening to us, and we are unhappy when unhappy things are happening to us. Let's be clear, the current circumstances we're in, these are not happy ones, and so it's very likely that we will not feel necessarily very happy all the time. But joy, the joy of the Spirit, the joy of Jesus, is so much deeper and more substantial and eternal. Which means that joy is not something that we try to understand. It's not something that we try to believe in. It's not something we can study. Joy can't be worked towards or attained. Joy is something to be received. It's something that we experience. The Christian life is an experience of Him, of the Spirit. We are passive recipients in this wonderful divine exchange once again. He provides we receive. Restore to me the joy of your salvation is the prayer of the psalmist. And right now, we are all in need, aren't we? So let's not be shy in asking. It's what Jesus has come to give us after all. Now, Ben's going to play a very famous hymn in a moment. And during uh, him playing this, I want to encourage us again to allow ourselves to be open to his spirit. And as we do this, and as we end, let me pray for all of us. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Spirit of the living God. Fill us once again and fill us with your joy. Despite all that is going on, fill us with your life once more, your extravagance and your goodness, your joy flowing down, filling us from our head to our feet, your joy like rivers of wine, 
of the choicest food, of salvation and goodness. Fill us again because we need you. We need the joy of your salvation once more and we ask that you would pour it out on us. Thank you that this is what you've come to do, to get rid of all shame and disgrace, to get rid of all loneliness and despair, to get rid of all hopelessness and depression. You have come to bring life and life in all its fullness and we welcome your life into our lives once again and we say come Holy Spirit. Amen. So have a great Sunday. We'll be doing Zoom prayer in a minute. Enjoy the rest of your week and see you soon. One peace like a river tendeth my way One sorrows like sea Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Oh, say. assurance control Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul it Hey.
clouds be rolled back as a scroll The trump shall resound and the Lord will descend even so